Welcome to Arrested DevOps episode 36, Dr. BOFH, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the DevOps. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Bridget Kremhout, at Bridget Kremhout on Twitter. So Trevor's not joining us tonight because he's camping in the rain, so <laughs> sucks to be him. But it doesn't suck to be 10th Magnitude, who's one of our sponsors. And they're a cloud services company that figures, if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool and probably aren't camping in the rain with Trevor. You can find out about joining their cloud services team with Trevor at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is also sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle to decrease resolution time. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit arresteddevops.com pagerduty. This podcast is also brought to you by Logly. Logly is an agent-free logging solution that can save your site and your sanity. Whether you're troubleshooting site issues or monitoring external services, Logly allows you to easily discover root causes for specific errors while managing and centralizing your logs. Get started with all features included for free at arresteddevops.com slash Logly. All right, so tonight we're talking to some reformed BOFHs, aka bastard operators from hell, about how our experiences have changed over time in the industry. Our first guest is friend of the podcast, Chris Reed. How's it going, Chris? Hey guys, good to be back. So we also have uh, Kevin Hubbard joining us for the first time. So welcome, Kevin. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, Kevin Hubbard here. I'm uh, currently the DevOps engineer for B-Cycle at Trek Bicycle Corporation. I um, have about 15 years as a, as a former sysadmin. And also joining us is Evo Van Dorn. Please tell us about yourself. <clears throat> thanks, Bridget. Um, so my name is Evo Van Dorn, and I'm also a reformed bastard operator from hell. Uh, previously worked at classmates.com and McGraw-Hill Corporation, where I definitely practiced those beliefs. I know uh, we're obviously all familiar with with Simon, a.k.a. the Bastard Operator from Hell. But first of all, listeners, if, if you're not, you can go to arresteddevops.com slash BOFH, and there's a link to the BOFH archives. But really kind of the history of it was it was, I uh, believe it was, you know, kind of some stories traded around on Usenet. Uh, in the mid-90s that were supposedly the diary of a computer operator named Simon who lived uh, with no purpose other than to terrorize the users of his systems and had a very antagonized, uh, antagonistic relationship. And to be honest, that was, uh, it really resonated for a lot of reasons, I feel like, for, for, for most uh, sysops and sysadmins at that time. Uh, makes me always think about there's a line in Clerks with, uh, which is this job would be great if it wasn't for the fucking customers. And I kind <laughs> of feel of like... Said, how great would the job... How many of us said how great would this job be if it weren't for all the users? <laughs> exactly. Like these people like touching my stuff and messing up my stuff. So I'd like to kind of hear some, uh, some stories or experiences um, from the panel about... You know, again, we we've all lived in this type of a relationship in our career. What was it like when when we were starting out and you kind of had these barriers? I don't know. To me, it was sort of operating in a scarcity model. You had limited resources, and and, and my background was more hardware based, um, provisioning storage, um, supporting a hypervisor, and it seemed like anytime there was a new ask for uh, a new application, I immediately went to okay. How am I going to go back to ask for the capacity to run this? And I, I would get so frustrated, I boiled it down to, you know, how are we going to support this? You know, and that was like my standard line anytime someone brought up something new, which, you know, I always wish that I could have been, you know, or what I would tell people is I, I wish I had like a trophy to give you for a good idea because I just can't get that off the ground with the resources that we have. And, you know, it just kind of, I would say, was not a fun fun way to operate, but I, I thought that was the most realistic view. My introduction to it came from uh, back when I was, my last couple of years of high school and back at university, I was the, uh, the system administrator for, for, at least when I was in high school, for the school systems. Then in university as well, just helping out with uh, admining on the computer science side of things. And to me initially, it was just seeing what damage ignorance of a system can do, how people trying to do something, how 
how badly they could affect shared resources and what the knock-on effect of that can do. And most of the time it wasn't malicious. It was, it was due to ignorance, but it kind of built up this, this mental attitude of, of all users are just out there to break things. We need to constrain them as much as possible because when things break, you're the one that gets shouted at. And also remember at the time, the systems didn't have as many safeguards built into them. I mean, remember how terrible the locking was in the mail systems? Yeah, you had to restore people's mail, you know, inboxes from backup all the time, but they weren't bad people or stupid, and that's why they tanked their mailbox. It was because the tools were not, you know, actually all that helpful. That's because you were using the new shiny inbox. You should have just uh, left emails as individual files as God intended. <laughs> <laughs> Until the file system filled up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you run out of iNotes. I, I remember yeah. uh, years ago, I had a, a good friend of mine who's on the dev side of the house, and I would get emails or calls from him, and it was in different company. You know, we were working at different companies, and he'd basically be asking me how he could get around the things the sysadmins put in his way. He'd be like, well, I really need to do this thing, and so how can I get around this thing? And I was like, dude, I can't do that. I can't sell out my... I'm like, I don't even know your sysadmins, but those are my brothers, man. I'm like, I'm not going to screw them over by telling you how, even though I totally could. And 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 that that to me like resonates to the way that I think a lot of us thought about it, which was there. And, and again, like to Chris's point and to Bridges' point, not necessarily malicious, but you know, there was this belief that it was like just devs are st stupid, right? You know, or or whomever, and and like whoever your users are whether you're supporting an app dev team or if they're end users, if you're supporting, you know, backend infrastructure stuff, all they're going to do is, is break things because they don't, they don't care, right? Like nobody cares about the systems like a sysadmin does because they're ours, right? Now, now I keep well, seeing smiles from Evo. So tell yeah. us about your background yeah. or which all of right, these camps so, were you in? So I was definitely in the sysadmin camp and our devs, while they didn't care, they were also incentivized not to care. So the place I came from, they had deadlines, and it was very, it was, I mean, let's talk about software, like, methodologies or software development methodologies. There was very much waterfall, and they had a deadline on, say, a Thursday, because it was, like, every three or four weeks, and sometimes ended up being on a Thursday. And a developer, they got actually paid on, and this was a, uh, the, the social network that never became like good, you know, because they're still around. I don't want to like refer to them by name, but like this, this company incentivized their developers to ship code that was intentionally bad. And I've had some nightmare stories and some, some nightmare late night, like trying to figure out. And, and one in particular that I can remember is uh, we launched this new yearbook type app where someone could upload their photo and the developer shipped code to the, uh, the sysadmin team or the system engineering team. And it didn't include any logic for when an upload would fail. That doesn't seem bad, except for that this also went on a brand new uh, net app that was set up and it had restrictive permissions on it because I'm a sysadmin and I care about locking up permissions to the operating user of that app, which is at that point was a, was a resin app that was running as a resin user, which was under a JVM. And it did not have write permissions on certain directories on that photo, uh, that new like NAS. Uh, so it could create directories if certain things happened in the right order. But if that, if so for some reason it didn't happen, the photo would say it was uploaded successfully to the user. And it was also put in the database as, like, it would link to the photo that it was uploaded successfully where it was at, but there was no photo. Oh, I, no. Think you had the same, I think we had the same code at apartments.com because we had the exact same problem with our friend by owner where the same thing where there was a photo upload capability and then you would end up with all this junk in the database that would end up with, like, 404 images on the site because it would, like, generate the URL that pointed to no actual image file. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that was one of my like faster operator from hell moments. And it was just like fucking developers. <laughs> <laughs> but you made a really, you made a really good point 
It's okay. We've made our peace with the explicit tag. Yeah. <laughs> um, you made a really good point about, uh, you know, misaligned incentives. Um, I'm wondering if the rest of our panel wants to address what they've seen with incentives that may or may not have been diametrically opposed or at least not aligned very well and how that made the sysadmins versus the rest of the organization or even users or devs or whatever behave. So I, I can tell this is this is a fun story I like to tell. Smarter folks and I have said this for, before. I, I mentioned in the show notes that Tom Limoncelli talks about this and Chris already corrected me in the green room that actually someone else said it first. But again, it's just this idea that, you know, and in development, commonly you're incentivized to deliver features and in ops you're you're incented to provide stability. And what provides stability is things not changing, right? Like changes make make shit break. I, I think back to a colleague of mine at a firm and basically literally her bonus was tied to a percent based on a percentage of uptime of the site. So this was downtime on that site was cash money out of her pocket. And do you think that this person would ever let anybody touch anything? Hell no. And could you blame her? That sounds like a recipe for never upgrading for vulnerabilities. <laughs> Yeah, it was totally, it, it ain't, it literally, it ain't broke. Don't you dare try to fix it. Yeah, I guess along similar lines, um, you know, my experience with developers or that, um, you know, maybe it was a small group that really had some sort of ter territorial, you know, um, sort of mindset around the application. And 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 I don't think the, the sort of uh, viewpoint that uh, users are losers is just for sysadmins. I think that uh, developers often have the viewpoint that, you know, users don't know what they're asking for. So I often found myself like sort of siding with the users on like, okay, this is obviously a bug. This is not working the way it should. And just running up against a wall against with developers, just like, well, and, you know, they had stuff in their pipeline, typically, you know, new features or a new rewrite, a complete rewrite. And shit that was just broke was left to the sysadmin to either restart services or figure out some other way to sort of explain away in a very lengthy phone call of why it works this way. And, yeah, to, you know, that was kind of, you know, yeah. Do the, do the workaround, right? I mean, this is, let's let's talk about the loveliness of idle, right? What's one of the things idle gave us? A literally the word workaround, right? That's like a thing in ITIL is that there's a workaround, which means we're not going to fix it, but we're going to, somebody's going to have to do some work. And like, I, I remember at, at apartments and again, I'm, this could happen anywhere. So I'm not saying bad things about the company. It's more about maybe some of the developers that are still good friends of mine, but I can talk shit about them. We had a scenario where, so there was a memory leak in the web app in this .NET web app that basically required at any, you know, at least several times a day, actually having to recycle the app pool. And this went on for weeks and weeks. And it was a matter of, well, it's no big deal. Sysadmin will do it. And they're like, for real? Right. You know, it's like, no, we can't. We're not going to try to troubleshoot this because we have to ship features. Never mind the fact that we are constantly, you know, again, it's it's that common, like, things aren't being operationalized or being thought about in that way. And I think that's a big thing that caused that divide, right? Which was not, you know, so you, you do end Absolutely. up with that, like, that feeling like nobody gets it, man, right? And And I've worked with lots of sysadmins who, again, have this personal attachment to their stuff. And I remember writing, a, this is the thing. So tell me, let me tell you, this might be the way that my thinking has changed. So when I was a manager, I was right. I remember a review that I wrote for one of my sysadmins over and over again, who we worked for me for years. And his review always said, so-and-so takes the uptime of our website personally. And I thought that was a grand compliment that's not actually a thing to drive, right? Because then you're talking about like, again, even though it wasn't a monetary incentive, he had a personal investment in that kind of thing. So that's going to echo through how you approach allowing change to your systems. And I think it comes out subtly too, right? Like you sort of project this like cowboy developer thing on people just by virtue of the, cause they're touching your stuff whether they're cowboys or not. And there's, yeah. there's, a, there's so many valuable things that you're saying there, Stratton, and I wanna hear more from our panel about this too, yeah. but I just, I wanna point out too that in reality, there's a lot of perception of like, oh no, the whomever will touch our stuff and it'll go wrong. But like reality, um, anyone who touches anything, it can go wrong. 
hey, AWS is having AWS-like things happen. It can go wrong. Totally bizarre interactions between, you know, some sort of kernel bug or a misconfiguration in your VPC that leads to ARP cache problems. Not that that, it's oddly specific because it happened to us recently. Like, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong that are often not a specific person's action. And, and yeah. the irony of it is the same sysadmins who will love to talk about like how developers are going to fuck up their shit, love to sit and tell war stories with each other about when they fucked shit up, right? <laughs> Chris was on, we did a whole episode about this, right? So, so reality, hypocrites. Yeah. yeah, reality, we all fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But with, with the, the, the memory leak one that the man was talking about, it, it reminded me of kind of one of the first times where I actually started to see the value of, of educating users. And it was, again, it was, it was a web app, it was a big e-commerce.com, and it was, again, leaking. This time it was just leaking sockets. We had, it was a Java web app, and this thing was just leaking, leaking sockets. And every three hours we had to restart the JVMs and just cycle them through the cluster one by one to keep up time. And eventually I, I, walked, I happened to be the... Uh, uh, we just migrated from ClearCase to CVS, thankfully, and so um, I was happy to be rid of ClearCase. But I decided to go and dig through the code and and see what this guy was doing. And basically, he'd, he'd create sockets and just leave them there, and he'd never close them, and he'd never clean them up, and that's why they were leaking. And so eventually, I went in, over and spoke to the developer, and it's like, why are you not closing your sockets? And he's like, garbage collection handles that for me. And you know, then the penny dropped. It's like, oh, okay, so he thought he was right. He wasn't being malicious. He wasn't trying to be a pain it was just it was just he didn't know any better and so you know this this was also at the stage where i had a, a six foot pine pole that i carried around which uh, the developers titled the clue stick because whenever i walked around with the clue stick then you know me walking towards where the developers stood carry the clue stick everyone was nervous everyone would look up it's like oh dear who done it who done it and you know i reached the stage but then i i realized that you know, we need to have these conversations. We need to be talking with the developers and saying, hey, do you realize that this thing you're doing is causing this massive impact for everyone else? So basically a six-foot-long pine stick of clue <laughs> is not DevOps. It's not DevOps. So how has this changed, though, right? So so things are – well, first of all, that's going to be kind of my question is is – has it changed in your experience? I mean, Chris was yeah. was was going right to that, so I want to hear a little bit more about how do you look at because we're all supposedly reformed BOFHs here. So how did uh, how did you make that transition? How did you you know did twelve step program? Did they put you into you know Simon rehab in the desert or what? Um. So so me, I I at this stage I I'd, I'd spent you know a good you know, three, four years each side, either being a developer or being a sysadmin or being a network admin. And so, you know, I would flip-flop between the two because whilst, you know, being elbows deep in cables in a data center, I would miss writing code. And while waiting for my code compile, I'd, I'd miss, you know, kernel optimizations um, in, in the hardware. And so it was, you know, realizing that I could have these conversations with developers and that I would actually their reaction to me would be better if I went without the clue stick and had the conversations um, and started speaking to them about, so do you realize that some some feature in your code is, is, is doing X and Y? And as probably to, to a bigger extent, um, it really took off for me when I, I joined ThoughtWorks about 10 years ago where, you know, the very first project I was on was with Jez Humble and Dan North, and that's the one that, that we kind of wrote the, the initial continuous integration pipeline paper that came out of, and eventually that's, that's the project that Jez's book came out of, because then there was, there was eight of us sitting in a room on this project, and our whole purpose was to get code written by two different development teams, get it out into production onto the client systems, and it was only through you know, we had the relationship with our developers, but we didn't have the relationships with the, with the clients as admins. And it was only through getting them involved in, in all the questions that I really decide, 
you know, really realized that it needs to go both ways. It's not just sysadmins telling developers, hey, do you realize your code is, is doing X, Y, and Z, but it's also, you know, from the being the developer's advocate going to the sysadmin saying, hey, what's our, our network config look like? What's our hardware look like? What are our options around X, Y, and Z? Um, and, and building up the relationship and, and being able to, to test when we found, you know, again, one of the first deployments we did on that project was, you know, the, one of our first prod deployments out to a cluster. Everyone was writing state to local file system. But then as they didn't have sticky bits on the load balances, so as, as they flipped over, it, it carried on. And so it's, it's, it's just this, this keep on going, um, you know, keep on trying. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Chris, uh, you know, to the newbie here that uh, it just seems like uh, DevOps has, you know, sort of uh, formalized the relationship between sysadmins and, and, and developers. And I'm sure you guys have covered that before, but uh, to me being new to the role, it also just seems like a much more natural, you know, sort of iterative process working closely with devs. Um, I think what a lot of what we're talking about is this sort of dichotomy of users and, and sort of I've traded up, you know, the, the end user with people that are actually classically trained IT pros. And, and so the conversations that we're having now that the, the relationship is more formal is it, just, uh, I don't know, it, to me, it just seems much more valuable. Um, we're working side by side. We're, we're sort of kicking ideas back, you know, back and forth. Um, so to me, it feels like there's less of the time spent. Are you asking, you know, have to do the math. Are you asking for what you think you're asking for? You know, that was my sort of approach to, to, to users and users, but now that my customer base has changed and now my customers are, are devs, you know, we kind of cut to the chase in a sense. And we, we really are starting to have a meaningful conversation around what's the best way forward. Uh, what's the smart decision and, and we're working, I don't know. Uh, anything else I say is going to sound really sort of kumbaya and cheesy, but I think you guys catch my drift. Hey, we're we're all about the kumbaya and cheesy here. Nice. <laughs> I was I was actually going to just say like that back and forth collaboration I think is super valuable, and also like Chris said that it's not so much just Chris is the one dispensing wisdom from the mount, you know, like bringing down stone tablets to hand to ignorant folk or whatever. I mean, that's not the way it works anymore because of the kind of people that Kevin's talking about who we're collaborating with. I mean, like at Drama Fever, we had some horrible cash machine problems. And Art, one of our developers, is the one who put a lot of effort into solving a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's something that in some organizations would have just been the, you know, role of ops. But we actually have a pretty collaborative relationship. And we had a developer who had the skills and the ability and dug deep into a problem. It's like, I like having that kind of collaboration on a team. Sorry, no, I, was, I was just going to say, Bridget, have you ever seen handing down stone tablets on high work at all? I've never seen <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Evo? <laughs> I have not. But here, so one of my, so I'm going to completely cut back to why I went to the, the anti-BOF camp is uh, they actually fired our PMO organization. And that made things a lot better. It's actually interesting that they were sort of like they existed. This is at my last job. They existed to surely like separate dev from ops. And we were going through a downturn and they got rid of the project management team. I'm, I'm sorry, project managers out there. We all love you. But in this case, you, you didn't do a good thing. And uh, the moment they got rid of them, they actually had to invite someone from system engineering into uh, the development meetings because it was in the past, it was someone from project management that would communicate the, the needs and, and the wants from development for the next release. But now it was actually someone from IT operations that sat in the room and it became some, it, it immediately became more collaborative and immediately we saw and foresaw things that were happening early on development of a sprint because we we're actually using agile development, but we had a PMO organization, so it was like a hybrid agile development because it's not truly agile. We actually foresaw things coming down from development that we could actually support them early on, and we knew exactly what it would take to actually undertook that initiative. And at that point, I saw the light. Like I saw, I, I, without reading anything about DevOps, or without like, then there was stuff about DevOps already published at that point because DevOps is five year 
five years old today, right? Matt? It's about five and a half years old at this point. Yeah. This is well into DevOps actually being a thing. And I actually remember reading about DevOps at Netflix and I'm like, well, that's never going to apply to me because that's Netflix. Um, <laughs> I think we've all had that. Like, like I've told the story before about the first time I heard Jez on DevOps Cafe talk about continuous delivery. And I'm literally driving down the Eisenhower Expressway, yelling at my radio that that would never work at apartments.com. And then he drops the HP LaserJet firmware story. And I'm like, oh, never mind. Yeah. So for me, it was getting rid of PMO actually allowed us to start collaborating with the team. And that turned into a lot of good things. That makes sense in that even if you have project management as a focus in your organization, that doesn't replace the actual cross-functional cooperation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, th- I think I can see, you know, and, and Evo, not to not to put words in your mouth, but see if I'm kind of unpacking what you said, is it wasn't so much having a PMO in general was the problem, but a catalyst that forced the collaboration was removing them. So previously the PMO had fulfilled a certain role of communication when those people weren't there. Maybe the point wasn't to enhance all this awesome collaboration, but it was just like, well, someone can't take the requirements from the users and give them to the engineers thing, right? You know, so it was like, I guess people have to talk to each other. And then you see dividends pay out of that, right? You didn't mm-hmm. you didn't start coming to the meetings so that you could do the DevOps. You started coming to the meetings because you had to. And then there was a benefit right. that came no, out of it. Absolutely. Know? So there's this great example of where we had to do a, a data center migration. So my last employer, they were a managed services company, or they they were paying a managed service company about fourteen thousand dollars a month to host about fifteen servers. I kid you not, fifteen servers and it cost them fourteen k a month. And it was like with this outfit in in a New York area, and like I came in and the first six months, I'm like, what? why are we spending this much money when we have a staff of six in Seattle supporting 15 production servers that we could easily do? And so I came and I went to the VP of operations and like, and, and technology, I'm like, hey, so we could easily do this for about a third of the cost if we did this on our own. Like, And they were anti-cloud, so I even proposed AWS at the time. I'm like, Okay, so I got shut down on AWS, but they were totally open, and it was because of business stuff. So there's a bunch of accounts, and they, they couldn't do AWS because of accounting, whatever. So I proposed, like, something safe. It was, like, VMware, and it was about a third of the cost. They would have ROI on the entire thing in about nine months because they were paying so much money for 15 servers. We started this project. And I actually reached out to the head developers at the time, like, so we're going to move everything over. And I got shut down by my PMO organization. On top of that, I actually got, like, spanked. Like, I hate using the word, but I actually got verbally assaulted by people because I approached the developer directly about, like, getting this done, which would have direct savings to the business on top of... It give, gave us the ability to deliver faster. But that sounds I like am, an org. I mean, that sounds yeah. like you're describing an organization that's fairly dysfunctional, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they don't want you to save them money because instead they want you to preserve some power structure yeah. or some real or perceived internal organization. Yeah. So like we I, and I ignored it because I'm pretty stubborn, and and Matt knows this. I'm pretty stubborn as 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 I can be. And I just kept on going. I'm like, well, I saw the light. I'm like, I, I'm going to keep going. And I remember it was about two weeks before we had to cut over from this managed service organization to the new data center. And the developers were all on board. We had some minor issues. And there are minor issues in that, like some of the IPs in translate because we were moving the static app from one place to another. And like, there are some changes. The development organization was all on top of it. But the PMO organization wanted to put a block on it. Like they're like, no, we're gonna delay by a month. I'm like, no, we, we we know what the problems are. We we realize what the problems are. We have a plan forward. I was using a, a different. I was using a configuration management tool at the time that was different than what I currently work for. And we we had identified the issues in. It's that. okay to say where you work, Evo. Yeah. Okay. Great. Evo's my boss at Chef, by the way. Ah shit. He also <laughs> loves it when I call him my boss. 
Uh, anyway, so you thought was, you were going to get through this show without and, that coming up. Anyway, so I was using Puppet, and and we had everything written in Puppet, and it was like we were going to completely stand up the infrastructure with Puppet, and we knew exactly what was wrong, and we identified it, and we even fixed it within six hours. But the PMO organization, because we had a mistake that happened now two days ago, like they wanted to delay the entire thing by a month, which would cost the organization another because we're now we put in our notice. They were going to charge us twenty grand to stay there, and I'm like this is ridiculous. We ended up moving forward. We we overruled the the PMO organization, but to this day, it's, it's bad times. <laughs> Stay away from that. Yeah. Um. So Kevin, uh, tell us a little yeah. bit about the Dev slash Ops Cooperation or you know, whatever it is that you have where you work. Like, do, you have, do you have project managers standing in the way of your ability to talk to each other? No, we don't. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know if it's an exact um, sort of, um, you know, similar situation, but we kind of have inherited um, uh, the application we're working on from a, a vendor that was developed, you know, uh, according to a certain spec back in the day. And we've taken it on and, I, you know, I hear stories, uh, this was before my time uh, at Trek, but, you know, the relationship before, we'd basically write some code, throw it over the wall, or rather the vendor would write some code, throw it over the wall, and it either did or did not do what, you know, it was tasked to do. And oftentimes it did not do what it was tasked to, but we just didn't have the, the group in place to sort of say that, hey, this is not what we, you know, basically paid for. It could be so much better. So since we've taken it in-house, and created the DevOps side, uh, you know, I just feel like as we're looking through, uh, you know, plug for a sponsor through Datadog and seeing, you know, that there's, you know, definitely opportunities to to make the application run, run more uh, efficiently, that we're all looking at this together. Um, there's less, you know, sort of team division where it's, well, this is a, you know, resource hardware issue versus no, this code could definitely you know, be written better. I think we're all sort of focused on those things together. We're in a small room together, so maybe that's part of it. And we, you know, we sort of work on our, our solution you know, throughout the day. We have a, a test B-cycle kiosk in our office. It's like five feet from my chair. It's about five feet from everybody's chair. And the normal sort of processes, we, it starts out working in the morning, but sometime around noon, it's definitely broken. And uh, hopefully we get it working again by 5 p.m. Uh, but we're all working on that. We're, we're sort of working against you know, instances in Azure um, on the server side, deploying you know, manual fixes and, and DLLs to the application on the, on the station itself. So for me, I don't know, I have like a little bit of um, uh, a, um, I, a panacea. I love what I do. I love who I'm working with. I'm I'm learning a ton. Um, I think that was one of the, the the worries. I know you guys covered what it means to be a new DevOps in a previous episode, but you know, one of my big concern is I'm not going to. Kevin, you can talk about it now too. Sure. Um, you know, it just it was really sort of a, a leap outside of what I was comfortable with, and I knew that in the interview and. You know, I've just found that there's just this level of uh, excitement and not knowing and a level of, you know, I, well, I got to figure it out because no one, you know, obviously people will help me, but I'm not one to sort of like punt. <laughs> so I, I like to like dig in and, and figure things out. And, and it definitely seems like if I do get stuck, I have the people there that, you know, know the answer on, on the code side or can help me with, with um, whatever I need for help with on the development side. So I guess, you know, what I, uh, maybe take it to some other place. The things I know that one of the questions we have on the agenda is what's changed for me. I think, you know, all the tools have definitely changed, but they haven't changed so drastically that I'm completely lost. I mean, I definitely, once I, you know, get in and, and see what, you know, okay, this is a little bit different than it was before. I guess I'm, I'm not in, you know, UCS management console. I'm now in, you know, portal management or, you know, everything you guys are, are, you know, intimately aware of has been just such an awesome shift for me because I don't feel like I'm sort of in this, you know, camp that has to defend against all other, you know, attacks from, you know, uh, other camps or users that don't know what they're asking for or, you know, financial um, sort of uh, barriers to, to, you know, accomplish what we want to get done. Um, 
I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I yapped for a bit there. <laughs> um, it's just been for me. It's been really cool. I think uh, you know we're working on a on a product that's um, definitely has a long ways to come to mature, and um, I, I don't see that we have any sort of you know major blocking or, or need to go outside of our our group to 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 solve the problem. I think everybody that has the different uh, you know knowledge or, or you know, um, background to, to solve the problem is working on the problem at the same time. That's awesome. pretty great. That's that's awesome. All right. So that that's the perspective of you're doing this stuff, you know, lately or recently. Chris, I know you're, I've seen you smile a couple of times there because you've been doing this stuff for a while. You want to give us uh, your perspective? Yeah, yeah. A couple of things, just especially with the, the talk of PMO, pretty much one of the first things that we got rid of at DRW when I joined was was just the project project managers um, getting in the way. We still have two project managers that we use. Uh, they are very, very valuable when it comes to doing things like um, data center migration, setting up new data centers, big bits of work where timelines are needed and bits and pieces and the rest. But they've got nothing to do with software deployment, uh, software delivery, software management. They are really focused on data center infrastructure circuits and lease lines and all the rest. Um, also, a lot of the, uh, the talk I, I spent today at uh, GoTo Chicago. Um, GoTo is kind of the, the current generation of one of my favorite lines of conferences. And um, I was going to save this for, the, for, the, uh, for the, the pointers at the end, but one of my, my favorite talks today was a good friend of mine, James Lewis, uh, talking about how he embraced Conway's law uh, and, and his talks initially on or kind of primarily centered around the microservices orientate points of view, but every, everything that he talks about applies to, to what we're trying to do from the, the DevOps point of view. Um, Conway's law, if, if, if anyone's not familiar with it, but Conway's law states, um, and, and he, he stated this in 1968, that uh, organization software uh, reflects the communication lines that happen within the organization. James points out that, you know, a lot of, companies that are successful with microservices, uh, what they do is they actually combine their, their systems. They, they, they reduce the, the overhead of communication between teams. And so you get these cross-functional teams that are focused on delivering a product. And so there's no PMO involved in there. Within the team, you have, you have your developers, you have your infrastructure guys, you have your networks guys if needed, um, any QAs and testers and all that kind of thing. There is a single team working together and they have complete ownership of what's going on. But this also works outside the software industry. One of the great examples he uses is around um, the team at the Royal Free who, who cured the three Ebola patients that made it into the UK, uh, where they've got exactly the same thing. There's a team of 33 that focuses on each patient as they that focused on the Ebola patients when they came in. But of that 33, only seven were clinicians you know, they had their own porters, they had their own facilities guys, they had their own finance guys that were all kind of dedicated on this team to, okay, this is a serious infectious disease that we need to kind of iterate around very, very quickly because, you know, how are we going to cure this? How are we going to stop it from spreading? And these same principles that we're talking about within software are also principles that people are dealing with outside the tech realm. Um, some, some of the other bits and pieces that we have around kind of the, the age, the, the changing of the, the BOFH mentality for me is, is how I treat my PFYs. Uh, so the PFYs, for those not, not familiar with, with the BOFH, the PFY is the pimply-faced youth. Um, the, the, the first PFY or, or two that I had, um, you know, the important lessons that I felt I needed to teach them was, you know, defensive, um, you know, how, how to preempt the, the evil things that the users would try and do. Um, my last, my, my recent, well, my current PFY, you know, now is, is at least the, the one before, the one I had in London, he, he would often complain about the history lessons that I would give him. Um, but often it's, it's once the history lessons helped him understand how we get there. And so some of those history lessons would be hardware orientated or network protocol related, but some of the history lessons also how we got to the stage now where we need to talk to everyone um, involved in focusing and having everyone focused on the goal of where we're trying to get to. Um, 
rather than have this antagonistic approach, try and see it from the other person's angle and try and think about the problems that they're trying to solve and see how can we help us as a group collective move forward. That's that's a really good point, Chris, because I know that a, a long time ago in the 90s, um, when I was learning by example and learning by, you know, reading alt system and recovery, uh, you remember all system and recovery. <laughs> You're smiling. Oh yes, um, oh yes, the memories. Um, but when when that was the environment that was shaping my attitude, I had to actively work to change my attitude, to move past that, and to start thinking about things from the perspective of other people. And how can we all work together to try to meet the organization's goals more effectively? And like that, it, it does require like making a deliberate decision to shift, but I'm glad that you're taking that approach and teaching that to your PFYs these days, because hopefully then more people aren't going to start out in the BOFH, BOFH mentality that we started out in. So how can we do better? We used to be this way. We're better now. But what are what are some of the things when, when you kind of look in? And I would say, uh, you know, only three-fifths of the people on this panel right now are actually practicing sysadmins or sysops or whatever right now. Um, Evo and myself don't do that necessarily directly for a living, so it's a little easier for us to talk about. Like, it's more hypothetical. But for those, uh, you know, for Bridget and, and Kevin and Chris who are doing this work, how um, what do you, what do you want to do to get even better about this unless you're totally perfect now and then you can yeah. <laughs> no i mean for me i i i definitely would like to um become more familiar with with just development standards and 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 hey pick up pick up a language and and, and start writing code um you know powershell right now is where i spend most of my time and you know i'd like to i'd like to take a stab at, at building something um not that I haven't done that in the past, but you know, it seems like now, you know, my my off hours when I'm not working, I'm more likely to do that. So that's that's kind of my my playbook here coming up. Um, you know, uh, just being able to like steer DevOps and make smart decisions on what tools we're using, and you know, not uh, to 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 you know, just take a little bit of here from here, take a little bit from there. As far as uh, the the plethora of tools that are out for you know um, uh, whatever you name it, there's just a lot of focus on on, on tools for DevOps. So I don't know. Um, I, I, again, there's you know you uh, oh, I I, I want to maintain this new flexibility I've found in, in DevOps, but I feel that there's uh, some you know decision making that needs to be made on on what tools we're using, what we're standardizing on. And how to keep that going forward. So, you know, taking my, uh, you know, page out of my old playbook, how are we going to support that? But yeah, finding a way to support that because it makes sense and it, and it, it you know, is in this um, sort of new realm of, of uh, cohesion and working uh, more closely with all, you know, different, um, you know, well, not all, not, not all camps. Um, because we, we don't have the typical infrastructure teams um, or you know email some support groups and what I'm doing so uh, just taking this new sort of relationship between um, ops being able to go to the cloud to spin up new instances new uh, create you know more more capacity um, for for our applications um, and and yeah just just sort of being able to to keep going down that that successful path which been you know has been successful in the well, it's been about 10 months now, almost 11 months. Um, but sort of keeping the agility, keeping my eye towards what's coming down the pike as far as new tools, um, how to use some of uh, the, the uh, you know, different, um, uh, I just, uh, my head swimming, I spent the last week at MS Ignite, so. <laughs> uh, See, you have all sorts of ideas. I know, like I, I want to talk about Release Manager and how exciting I, excited I am for that as a platform to, to build all these other, you know, um, link in all these other cool tools that we're using, uh, Octopus Deploy, Chef, uh, Team City, um, to sort of, you know, use that as a sort of base platform to start building up some, some more in-depth um, 
uh, release process and and um, you know metrics on how frequently we're releasing. To me, I think it's important to show to the business leaders, you know, how important this DevOps notion or that's not just a notion that there's some you know traction being made having this um, you know sort of focus on um, you know constant uh, development, constant deployment. I think at Trek it's kind of a neat organization because their their products are built around that. They're constantly releasing new product and new uh, bikes, apparel, what have you. So constant improvement is a thing at Trek, and I think DevOps you know fits that as well. And and just being able to show that with some metrics. Um, so yeah, yeah. That, no, I think that's that's, 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 that's really. I was going to say, Stratton, I bet you're probably thinking what I'm thinking, which is it's really exciting that. Kevin just told us all this stuff, and this is a, from a Windows perspective. And I know that those of us who have been doing this for a while, like we didn't think of Windows as a platform that you could even talk about, you know, continuous delivery or configuration management on. But there's been so much progress in that area; it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh you know I want to just kind of throw this in here a little bit, following up on some of the stuff Kevin was talking about, because initially this episode was supposed to be our Microsoft Ignite wrap-up episode, but I that was a big fail for me, so we, we put this one together, and I'm actually really excited. This turned out pretty awesome, so I love that. But one of the couple observations uh, that I had about Ignite that I, I do want to share, the amount of interest that we had at the Chef booth, and, and that's not a patting ourselves on the back. That's not supposed to be like, oh, yeah, because Chef is awesome. Everybody wanted to talk to us. But compared to previous events, just how many folks that were at this basically what used to be tech ed, you know, so this is the, the what Microsoft would call the IT pros, you know, so the sysadmins of the Microsoft world, the admin, you know, it's not mostly developers and stuff. How many came to us and maybe they didn't know what Chef did, but they, they understood, like when we said, oh, this is something that helps facilitate DevOps, they knew what that meant in kind of a very real way. And it was, it was a lot less of, it was a lot more talking about Chef and and what we could do, then here's why any of this matters at all, which was really heartening. And and especially just to see how much of the talk, you know, I didn't, unfortunately, didn't get to really see very many talks because I was standing in the booth all day having the same conversation with 800 people, which was great because it was a great conversation to have. But talking to people about the talks they went to, these were topics I would not expect to have seen at a, a Microsoft event a few years ago. And it's uh, people have tweeted and made these comments that yeah we are we are definitely living in an alternate timeline right now you know <laughs> so somewhere somewhere there's an alternate universe where it really sucks to work with Microsoft stuff um, fortunately we're not living in that uh, in that alternate timeline right at this point we're in the good one or maybe it's the evil one I don't know the goatee. I'm um, just on that topic of how we can improve I'm oh, yeah. still interested in hearing what. Uh, what Chris and oh. Evo think that we are going to use, just a line or two, how are you working on iterating to get even better at this, you know, doing the DevOps as opposed to doing the BOFH thing? Uh, from my point of view, it's, I've, I've kind of dropped off the, uh, the speaking, writing scene for the last couple of years, uh, primarily because uh, moving continents with uh, a family is hard. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is much of what we see in the DevOps world. Um, the implication underneath is you need to be using a PaaS of some sort. Uh, you need to be somewhere in the webby space. Um, I don't deal with any PaaS. I don't have any TCP connections facing the intertubes. My stuff is all purely internal. And for a lot of enterprises, especially when I was a consultant, um, these guys are really suffering out there. So kind of for me, the next thing is to, to take what I've learned, um, you know, in my consulting days in the webby world um, and the five years I've, I've spent having my own hardware and kind of distilling those principles and, and kind of figuring out ways that we can roll it out to, 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 to the hurting masses out there who who really need some help and love. And as much as I, I hate the term enterprise DevOps, there is much we can do to help people in enterprises learn the lessons and love of DevOps. I would actually also target the 
other spectrum of that is the the loans to Sabin, the the one that works in a small or medium business, and they're one sysadmin supporting fifty to two to three hundred users. We need to start embracing them as well. Like um, that individual is is not a happy camper. They they clearly still think, and they're working under like a, a pressure where they they believe that it's just them versus the world. And I feel like things like DevOps and actually having a he or she understand know what DevOps is all about um, may actually make their lives a lot easier. And, and a great way of seeing sort of like a temperature reading of that is and. And Matt, you and I joke about this actually. Is uh, like Arsis Admin on Reddit. Like half that crowd is a lone sysadmin. And And they're so that, unhappy. And they're so unhappy. And like if you think about it, like if we can make their lives easier, they're gonna eventually go into an enterprise shop or they may go for a startup. But they're going to come in with these preconceived notions that being alone and supporting developers or supporting another organization is not a bad thing. And right now they do. Right now they really don't like life. And so I feel like that's one area we can really improve on. I, I agree. And I think you uh, would said, said basically the same thing that I, I would think about in, in the role that someone like you or I being on the vendor side and, and how I look at what I do again, you know, I mean, sure, it's great to, you know, get, get paid and everything, but I really do feel like we do what we do because maybe not everyone who we sell chef to or that we help out or do, do things with, is it really going to make a difference? But when it does, it's pretty, pretty fucking awesome, you know, to know that you're, you're doing some work that, cause we've had this pain, right. And you're not going to get everybody there. And, you know, Jez has, has said before about that, you know, he's going to be preaching this for the rest of his career. And the good news is he's always going to have a job. The bad news is there's so many people that don't want to hear it, but you still get through. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping. And I hope that happens. You know, I've given up on our sysadmin. It's just, it's a place where people just want to fight. They just want to be bitchy and they just want to complain and they just want to vent. And maybe that's okay. And maybe that's what that needs to be. And it doesn't accomplish anything by getting into a fight there. So let them, that's the empathy to that. But there's other mechanisms that we have to help show. And I think like this show, this episode, I think could be great because it says, hey, look, we've all been there. This is five people that this was most, you know, he'd been in our career for a fair amount of time, you know, and we all felt the way that you feel now. And we got there. So, and once you know something can be done, it's a lot easier to do it. So hopefully this helps uh, and helps like, reach some people. And and here's, you know, my solemn promise. If you're less BOFHE, I guarantee you'll be happier. Guarantee. A, a guarantee or your money back. You will we will we will happily refund you the money spent on the <laughs> <laughs> uh, offer not uh, eligible for our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> So that 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 said, let's uh, we need to, to wrap up here. So let's go into we've just got a couple uh, some community and event stuff coming up. Um, happy to announce. Well, actually, Bridget could say it. It's your <laughs> conference, your thing. Sure. Okay. Um, there is a lot of DevOps days coming up. Um, you should go to devopsdays.org and check them all out. Uh, if you would like to come to DevOps Days Minneapolis, it's July eighth and 9th. And unbeknownst to me, um, Matt went and, <laughs> Matt went and signed a Arrested DevOps up as a media sponsor for the conference. I'm I, I would on. like to point out it's not completely unbeknownst to you because, but to be fair, when I mentioned it to you, it was when we were we were in a bar and you were cranky about something, and I said, "Hey, ADO should be a media sponsor," and you said, "Talk to Duffield; he does the sponsors." <laughs> I really don't remember this conversation. Yeah, you were. Yeah, it was. I was, I was there. It was. Yeah. <laughs> This is so, so not I, yeah, but, familiar. Yes. But in any case, ADO listeners can get a 10% discount on um, a DevOps Days Minneapolis ticket, which is still on its early bird pricing until the end of May. So we can get 10% off with the code ADO10. Okay. So. And uh, D 
DC in June, Pittsburgh. The in very August. first DC, right? The very first, the first DevOps is DC um, at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office of all places. Mm. Be is this cool. getting to be the new thing now where you like have to do DevOps days like in somewhere, you know, like everyone has to raise a bar like Rockies was in a <laughs> data center. They're going to do that in the patent office. Although I'd like to say, you know, Chicago, we did ours in the Sears Tower. But you then you discover that those weird spaces are not really actually that good and you go back to something normal. You know, you did it in the Sears Tower, which was really cool. But I did not know it was possible to be too high for LTE yep. work. Yep, that's that's why we are not talk to Chris. Chris was our network guy. Exactly we're not doing it there again. But book browse on the network problems there. Yeah, that was that was pretty wacky. Um, so yeah, so DevOps Days Chicago. Uh, Matt can tell you a little bit more about yeah. that. Yeah, actually, so that'll be uh, August twenty fifth and twenty sixth. Twenty sixth, uh, it's at the Gleacher Center. And in Chicago, Illinois, uh, the end of August should be actually pretty nice. Registration is available. I think we still have some early bird tickets available. So if you go to devopsdays.org um, or devopsdayschi.org, you can register. And we also just opened our CFPs, which I think are open until the end of June. So if you go to cfp.devopsdayschi.org, um, go ahead and you can submit an Ignite or a talk. We'd love to see what uh, you have. Uh, so let's do our checkouts. Chris, what do you have for our listeners to check out? Yeah, keeping with the uh, the topic that we got today, um, there's an awesome talk about the evil hat by Liz Keough. Um, I've got a link to a recording of, uh, I think it was QCon London, um, where I saw her give this one, but it's it's fantastic. She gets some, some fantastic examples of of various different ways um, perverse incentives have, have bitten, bitten people. Uh, but yeah, also just um, keep an eye out for when the, uh, the QCon Chicago talks make it out uh, onto the internet um, because there's uh, some really, really good ones. The closing keynote today was from uh, one of the JPL um, NASA group who uh, she was actually in charge of uh, Working on the parachutes from the the, the Mars landers with the uh, the whole sky crane system there, which was uh, was a very educational talk. I really enjoyed that. Great, and Kevin. So uh, non tech related, the well, it is somewhat tech related. The new Trek uh, mountain bike that's out is the new Stash. It is a twenty nine er plus. It is super sweet. Um, Basically, the, the, the cool thing about this bike, so I ride a very large bike, and on top of, I'm six foot four. Uh, you know, with a 29er, you have larger wheels. Typically, those bikes are up a lot higher, and with a larger wheelbase, they're a little bit uh, uh, a little bit harder to uh, guide down a downhill path. So they've solved that problem by basically raising the rear chainstay above the drivetrain. allows the, um, when you pull up the bike, you can view it on trekbikes.com. Again, it's the new stash. You can see how much lower the uh, bottom bracket is by allowing oh. the uh, drivetrain to be below the chainstay. So I am looking at it right now. I love that the tires are called Chupacabra. Yeah, <laughs> it's a super, it's a super hot bike. Just came out this month. Uh, we're all very excited about it, and I'm hoping that they still have one of my size. <laughs> I need to buy a new bike, so I think Kevin, I'm going to be hitting you have up a friend. Some suggestions. Yes, absolutely. Glad to anytime. Uh, Evo, do you have any checkouts? I know we kind of hit you at the last minute, so do it live. No, not right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't because I had no idea that that was coming. <laughs> it's okay. I'll give my checkouts, and then if Evo wants to tell us about something cool he's read or bought or thought about or tried lately, that would be great. You know, uh, fa new favorite whiskey or whatever. Evo drinks um, IPAs. What? And martinis. I do, I, do, <laughs> I do drink ideas. Hey, at the DevOps Days Minneapolis organizer meeting tonight, I had some delicious uh, Lift Bridge. It's a very hoppy IPA from uh, you know, Stillwater. Or not St is it Stillwater? Yeah, it's from Stillwater. Um, okay, so I have two checkouts. Uh, one is we're about to that. If you're if you live in Zone 4B like I do, um, we're about to the uh, time of year where you start thinking that maybe you could start planting some things, but maybe not because it's overnight lows in the 30s right now. But um, 
if you're if you're into gardening at all, which I am, uh, seedsavers.org, uh, organic heirloom seeds is super worth checking out. You can get really interesting uh, seeds for, you know, like I don't know uh, types of carrots that you've never seen before, and you know things like that. So my son wanted to plant cantaloupes this weekend. Ooh. He found cantaloupe seeds at, at at Walmart. He's like, "Can we plant these?" I'm like, "I I've never grown a cantaloupe." <laughs> Can you grow cantaloupe in Chicago? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> We're sticking with carrots and cucumbers and tomatoes. Oh, I'll have to see. But anyway, so if you haven't, uh, you know, sated all your seed desires, it's yeah. worth checking Seed Savers out. And then also, um, because it was uh, a really interesting PDF that um, came up in a discussion that also actually linked to because as beer ops likes to say as Catherine Daniels likes to say he, you know he mostly communicates by sending PDFs to people whether in email or other um, but uh, he um, linked to this interesting paper by David Woods and a couple of other people from 2004 I think it was called common ground and coordination and joint activity which doesn't sound as exciting as it actually is because it's basically all about communication collaboration cooperation you know all of this inter-team stuff that um, we were talking about today on the on the hangout so that's awesome and, I've, and full disclosure I have not read the whole thing yet I've read like 17 pages in it's very long <laughs> there's lots of it's, it's hard to make it all the way through really long PDFs but it's really interesting so far Great. there might be a twist ending I don't know <laughs> so uh, my first checkout which I have to admit I haven't read yet because I just got it today but we want to share it is that the uh, early release, unedited, whatever version of the book, the O'Reilly book, Effective DevOps by Catherine Daniels and Jennifer Davis uh, has been released. And most amusingly, uh, O'Reilly chose to have the animal on the cover of it be a yak, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. Uh, so go ahead, you can go pick that up and put it on your Kindle or your ebook thingy or whatever. And then another one is, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this. I think it's Askinema, Askinema? It's basically ASCII cinema, and it's a tool for recording terminal sessions for playback later, like for a video of them. So like if you're showing a demo or doing a, a bunch of commands on a terminal. So um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, or it's ASCIINEMA.org to check oh, out. That's really, that's, cool. that's interesting. But okay, so we, we can't let Evo get, a lot, get away with um, not telling us anything whatsoever that's cool or awesome. So... Here's here's a gimme. Here's a softball. What is, in your estimation, the most delicious IPA? Hop Venom by Boneyard. It is the best IPA ever. Why? Um, it's a perfect balance of flavor, so it's not like overly. Like, even though it's called Hop Venom, it's actually not overly hoppy, and it hides the fact that it's a nine percent ish IPA, double IPA. Mm -hmm. By actually like being nice and it goes down nice and yeah I don't know like they have a they actually have the notorious which is a triple IPA while it's really good it is actually you can actually taste the alcohol versus hop in and where you don't. So I'd like to point out that Evo on Untapped has tried 558 different kinds of beers. So when he tells you that's good, you should uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll have a Honestly, link to that. It, we'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes. So my local, so my local bar in Seattle, it's called uh, Chuck's Hop Shop. They actually have it on tap every Monday, and they save a keg to do it on on Mondays. And at this point, I actually go there and call it Hop Venom Mondays because <laughs> it's just that good. <laughs> Boneyard Beer Company, you heard it here. All right, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Uh, so uh, wrapping up here, uh, we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it by going to ArrestedDevOps.com slash banana stand. It is the best way to know about our upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you like iPhone apps and don't have another kind of podcatcher. But hey, you can download it for free at ArrestedDevOps.com slash iPhone. Like to thanks to our sponsors. Make sure you visit them at uh, arresteddevops.com slash pagerduty and arresteddevops.com slash logly, which is L-O-G-G-L-Y. Thanks to uh, Chris, Kevin, and Evo for joining us and to our loyal listeners or disloyal listeners, depending on the case. 
If you enjoy Arrested DevOps or, or don't, uh, either way, we'd appreciate it if you visit arresteddevops.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We'd love to know what you thought of this episode, and you can leave us comments at arresteddevops.com slash 36. Be sure to check us out at arresteddevops.com or at arresteddevops on Twitter. We're always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at arresteddevops.com. Please let us know any ideas you have for future episodes. I'm Bridget at Bridget Crumhout. I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. We're Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. <laughs>